Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We were talking about the, the guy who I saw outside who, but for the fact that I was outside eating in my community, I wouldn't have learned that he suffered from OCD, which explained everything about why he came to court late, why he was using drugs. And it was something that he would have, he never told me because he was embarrassed, but because I was outside in my community feeling responsible for them. I, I mean, there's so many things that we need to do. And all of these things end up getting dumped in the criminal justice system. Judge Victoria Pratt is the author of the new book, The Power of Dignity, How Transforming Justice Can Heal Our Communities. As you can imagine, as a judge, she's seen every case under the sun. She's dealt with trauma, mental health. She's seen what happens when communities are fragmented because of the social economics, criminal justice system and politics. So let's get straight on with this. This is a big discussion. You're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true values seldom stray. Thank you for joining us on Stop and Search. And yes, we're going to be speaking to the Honourable Victoria Pratt, Chief Judge at the Newark Municipal Court. Her TED Talk has gone super viral. I think it's had about 30 million views. And if you want to find out, it's called How Judges Can Show Respect. A very simple sentiment, but one in which Judge Victoria Pratt is so passionate about. And that's why she wrote her book, The Power of Dignity. It goes into all the aspects associated with the criminal justice system. We need wholesale reform. Judge Victoria Pratt lays it out why. We talk about pipelines, the money pipelines. How do we take the money out of the criminal justice system? How do we deal with trauma? How do we deal with community-focused approaches better? A little caveat from me, I've got a cold whilst recording this voiceover. I had a cold whilst recording the episode, but just listen to Judge Victoria Pratt. She says it all. She is brilliant within this episode. If you want to find her on Twitter, it's at Judge V Pratt. And if you want to find out more about our work at Law Enforcement Action Partnership, then find your local branch across the globe. In the US, it's lawenforcementactionpartnership.org and Police for Reform on Twitter. And in the UK, it's at ukleap.org and at ukleap on Twitter. So let's get straight on this. Let's talk to Judge Victoria Pratt and the power of dignity. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and it's great to be having this conversation again because um, English seems to be very interested in this idea of shifting the narrative and really looking at justice with a new lens. 
I wasn't going to ask this straight off, but it's just occurred to me what there are some examples in the book of of people in your field, uh, fellow judges. But what is your general perception of people that view your work in the field and they are judges or lawyers? Do you get a favourable response or or do you get some detractors? You know, I'll tell you what's been interesting is when I was asked to speak about what it is I do, I was surprised at how many judges come up to me afterward and whisper or if they're not whispering, they're talking about how they do some of these things or how it gave them a different perspective on addressing these tough issues that come before them. And so, so much of this work for me has been about giving judges permission to do these things, giving them permission to take a human-centered approach to justice. I think that um, it is difficult in our institution, in the judiciary especially, which exists to replicate itself, to perpetuate itself as it exists, for people to go against the grain. And when you start talking about, you know, if you just do this or look at them differently, it's a different experience for folks. I I, I will tell you, I was appointed to the bench by then mayor and now Senator Cory Booker. And one of the things that people would say to him or about me becoming a judge in protest was, oh, you know, she's too nice or she's too little. I, oh, that one was my favorite, that I was too little to be a judge. And I, my response is always, I'm not trying to get on a ride at an amusement park. What what does my size matter? You should be talking about my legal acumen, my what type of judicial temperament I will have on the bench. But what that framed for me was that people's impression of what judges should be was wrong. Because if I needed to be physically big, that meant that I needed to be physically intimidating from the bench. And that's not important because people respect who you are and how you treat them. And I always like to tell folks, you know, in spite of all that, oh, she's too nice and she's too little, on the streets, I'm known as Judge Pratt don't play. And what that means is that she's fair and folks will tell you, oh, no, she's fair, but she expects you to do what she tells you to do. She's going to hold you accountable. And I think for me, that says more than anything else. It's this idea that even though I'm holding people accountable, they still respect me and they're willing to do what's required of them. They're willing to get to obeying the law. They're willing to behave differently because of this relationship that I've established with them in the court, how I engage staff as well. So, so much of this work to me is about judges being willing to kind of go into this space of like, okay, I'm dealing with a human being and let me tailor justice so that it serves not just that I've punished them because our system is just obsessed with this idea of punishing people as if it changes their behavior. And for me, if you give somebody 90 days in jail on the 91st day, they're still a drug addict unless you've done something in between that space to address the addiction. But it also makes you irrelevant if you are just 
harshly mashing people and they come out and do the same things. We have a responsibility to the community as well. This is not just, I say so much of this, I talk about defendants, but this is also about work for the victims because there are people who are harmed by the things that happen. We punish folks, give them fines, send them to jail, and then we send them back off into this community where the victim lives and we haven't done anything to change the person's behavior that has to go back and live with the person who's been victimized by the behavior. So I think just as I was, judges want more tools so that they can get more meaningful outcomes in their daily work. There's a lot of themes that I want to draw out of the book and you've just covered some of them there. Uh, one of the, the main arches is definitely procedural justice and it really relates to something we speak about as well in the, the Paleon principles of policing in the, and you just mentioned it there, that if uh, a society has a system or a police force that they can respect, then that respect comes back and it overlaps. Do you think that's one of the main conversations that the US needs to have right now is how do you get uh, a new instalment of respect on both sides? No, absolutely. I think people believe that just because you have a title, people respect that. And there are so many uh, books on leadership that says that tell you that if you are leading only from your title, it's absolutely ineffective because that's the least level of respect that people have for a person is just because they have a title. And we constantly need to have this conversation about what our roles are and how do we get people to behave in a way that is productive for everyone who's in these communities? So absolutely, this idea of procedural justice, which again has had some research behind it, which says that people believe, if they perceive, if they believe that they're treated with dignity and respect, not only does it increase the public's trust in the justice system, but it increases the judge's uh, compliance with the law and it increases compliance with the judge's orders. Now, that means that people also have to see the person who's in authority as a legitimate authority for them. And so that means that, that they will now submit to being governed by them. So that's this whole idea that, okay, I want to live in a society, but I have to see you as a legitimate form of government. You have to be somebody that I respect so that you impose rules and regulations on me and I'm willing to follow them. Too often we think that just because, you know, we sit on the bench, people aren't judging us. They're absolutely judging us. They're making decisions about whether they're going to follow our orders, whether or not they're going to come back to court, whether or not they're going to take the time to reflect on what we've said to them about their behavior based on this idea of how we treat them. And so, the idea that, with, especially with the police who are the first line of contact with the justice system, so often people come into courtrooms across the country and they're angry, not with the judge, but they're angry with that first point of contact. I, I laugh because I said, um, you know, there's more anger in the traffic courts than there are in the criminal courts where the consequences are more severe. And that's because people come to court in traffic matters, to fight about the principle of it, the principle of you giving me a ticket, the principle of you saying that I violated the traffic law. But the principle is also how you spoke to me 
when you gave me that ticket, how you spoke to me when I was stopped. So the principles of procedural justice are giving people voice, making sure that the process looks neutral, ensuring that people understand, making sure that people um, are feeling respected, that you're treating them respectfully. So voices explaining why you stopped me, explaining why I'm having this encounter with the police, explaining what just happened before you make a judgment. And, and this is all at the police level, you know, um, being neutral, listening to my side of this story, coming to a scene and really wanting to figure out what happened, making me understand why we're even having this discussion. Why are you talking to me about any of this and being respectful? But all of that stuff happens prior to the incident. So when, whether police show up at all when you call and how they approach, you know, they in the states, we're having this issue where um, people of color are not calling the police, even when there is a medical emergency. And it's because you don't know, they feel like you don't know what's going to happen when they come. You don't know if I'm going to be treated as the aggressor and harmed, or if I'm going to be treated as the actual victim or just the person who needs help. And so what I've seen I've seen awesome officers that the community knows them. They're community police officers because they've been in the community talking, engaging the people in the community before there's a problem, before there's even a problem so that when they are called, they're received differently. This idea that, uh, oh, there's there, there's this big, there's this no snitch rule and police can't resolve issues because the community won't talk to them. Well, you need to be better at your job because the community has to feel like there's this safe space so that they can tell you, oh, go behind the building because that's where the person is or what, whatever it is. But creating these relationships. I've had officers from the street who are considered police, community police officers who worked with people in custody. And I'm like, well, where are they? And people are just filling their guts, telling them about all these things that are happening because this is somebody that they trust in the community. So we also have to give police officers an opportunity to be peace officers and not just law enforcement. The, the answer is not always law enforcement. It's not always this military style training. Now, please don't get me wrong. I know that there are dangerous things that happen in these communities. I know that there are people that we can't even put them in the jail. It's not a good enough place to contain them. But what I'm talking about are the low level, everyday things that happen in communities that can be de-escalated, that can be resolved without a use of force that can be resolved without having to be aggressive. So, and, and that the community itself needs to begin to be involved in these restorative justice processes. There are things that you shouldn't be calling the police about. You're an elder in this community. You talk to these young folks about what's happening. There are neighbors that are having a problem about where, who's parking in front of and blocking a driveway, which then escalates into violence. Like that's what you see, these very small, minor incidents that happen regularly and they continue to happen and they begin, they turn into something. That's why we have a neighborhood that gets into a fight and there's 10 people in the courtroom. And now you send them to court and you're telling the judge to resolve this with a trial and jail and fines. 
And then we again send these people back into these communities. So this idea of procedural justice, this idea of engaging the community so that these matters can be resolved, but that there's healing, like that that's the part that I keep feeling that we miss that the judiciary has to understand that we also have to heal these communities when we're done with our cases, you know? Uh, so that's a part of, and, and that's a different talk. That's a different ca- part of the conversation. Healing. Why would I be involved in healing? Well, we need to be involved with healing because we're also a part of the hurt that these communities feel. So it's definitely a theme within your work and the the book, the yeah, the power of dignity, which is the title of the book, summarizes that you allow a voice. Uh, there's a there's a certain procedure that you go through in essay writing, which I've been fascinated by because you've been putting out snippets in the book. Can you explain what that is about? Why you give people the assignment of essays and and how that also relates to the, dare I say it, the theatrics of the courtroom with what you've experienced around the essay reading? Because quite often. They can be quite well received, can't they? <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to laugh at your use of the word theatrics, right? Because, and I guess because people see court as this very stoic, uh, dry, quiet place, or it should be. And I believe that the court is a part of this community, and that there's life that should happen. So the essays are incredible. The essays came from my experience with my mentor, um, Justice Cal- Judge Calabrese at the Brooklyn Red Hook Court. And, and I went to sit with him before I actually, right when I became, well, I sat with him twice before I became a judge when I was pushing this idea of a community court for the city of Newark when the mayor, then Cory Booker, um, told the judiciary, told us, this is this needs to happen. And I was working for the legislative body, so I went to see. And then I became a judge and I went to sit with him and I noticed he was assigning essays and he'd read these essays and he'd talk to the defendant and then he'd put them away. Well, what we know is that a lot of the people that come through the court um, are often poorly educated. So I imagine the first time I got an essay, I was like, wow, I can't figure out what this is. But more important than that, I thought, Public speaking, speaking in public is like one of people's greatest fears. What would happen if they could share their thoughts and their feelings with everybody who's sitting in the courtroom? One, I found that the essays became, they got better. But I was shocked at how personal and how deep and honest these essays were. Sometimes they were angry. I don't know why the judge asked me to write this stupid essay. <laughs> but they would always end with, oh, now I know why she asked me to talk about these issues. So I started to ask people to talk because I needed them to have voice, but I also needed one to figure out what was blocking them. But the answer to their problems was on the inside of them. They needed to identify what was the issue that kept them in the criminal justice system. What was the issue that kept them from moving beyond addicted to sober? What was the issue that had them so distracted in life that they would want to drop out of school? So what? why are you here? Because there's a reason why you're here and I need us to get there. It wasn't just, I want to know all your personal business, but I needed you to work through these issues. And most importantly, these are folks that nobody asked them questions and stops long enough to listen. Nobody asked them, what do you think about this? 
And so I design essays like, if I knew then what I know now, how would my life be different? Powerful. Because the thing that they, they knew then is still the thing that they should be dealing with now to shift them. Um, if I believe one of them really powerful was, uh, if I believe something po- positive about myself, how would my life be different? Now, that essay was less about what they wrote than the two weeks that they spent thinking about positive characteristics that they might have, right? Because for two weeks, you're thinking about, what should I write about? If I believed that I was smart, my life would be different in this way. And so for two weeks, they're having this self-realization, like if I believed this about myself. And as they begin to write the essay, they're like, wow, but this is true about me. Or this is, why don't I believe this? Because now they're done. And I'm like, why don't you believe that about yourself? And then it's because maybe somebody told them that it wasn't true. Maybe somebody told them that they were unworthy. And then we can work through the lie. Because that's what this false belief that they have about themselves is a lie. But when you start having them write these essays about themselves and you see the impact that it has on the folks sitting in the audience waiting to have their cases heard and you see the head nodding and you're like, wow, this is helpful to them as well. And so the essays were just so powerful and and they were brilliant. I would give them an article to read written on a collegiate level. A person had dropped out of the 10th grade and what would pour out of them, I would just yell like, you're writing like a college student. What are you doing? Why aren't you back in school? Why haven't you thought about your life beyond this silly corner that you stand on to sell drugs on that you're not good at? Because if you were good at it, I wouldn't know you, right? And having those honest conversations with them. And when you talk about the theatrics, I hope what you're talking about is the resounding applause that they get after they read these essays. And when I tell you that... the, the the audience members, we would just clap because they were so powerful. They were just so beautiful. Um, and for the first time, somebody had acknowledged them. And I, I am also a stickler for acknowledging people. And if you're in my courtroom, my courtroom's aren't like my living room. You're at my house, my rules. And so sometimes something would happen. We clapped for a person got a job interview. Yes, congratulations. A person got a new job. Congratulations. And if people didn't clap, I'd get on them because we respect folks. These are our neighbors. We're going to be happy for them in here. We're going to be happy for them when we leave. And I remember one of the gentlemen, a homeless gentleman with schizophrenia, who I had struggled with for years to get him to just do the program. And one day he comes in and the public defender's like, you know, he's willing to do this program. And he said, yeah, judge, I want to be one of these jokers you clap for. And I thought, my God. He wanted to receive praise. He wanted to receive this level of acknowledgement. And, you know, I would love sometimes people would read their essays. They bring family members with them because this was a great thing that was going to happen. And they would bring family members with them to court to hear them read their essays, which often was maybe the last thing they had to do. They take a bow, you know, and, and, and the officers, when the police officer comes over and taps you on the shoulder, congratulations, that was awesome. That was, and, and, and then we get an opportunity really, like I said, to kind of go through some of this stuff. There's a, there's a essay that I talk about 
where a woman starts her essay and she had come in with two people on that particular day. She was on, on a cane. And the first line of her essay is, I've been suffering from a fatal disease for 24 years. And I made a note. And as she reads her essay, she talks about how getting this diagnosis made her life go into a tailspin. And she starts using drugs because her life is over. And she's crying and people in the audience are crying as she's reading this heartfelt essay. And when she finishes, I say to her, do you know that you beat that disease in the first year? Like you've been beating that disease for the past 23 years of your life. You can't have a fatal disease for 24 years. Every morning you wake up, you look at that disease and you say, I wish you would try to take me out and you beat it. And you've been telling yourself the wrong story. You've been telling yourself a story where you are the victim. And in fact, you are the victor because every year you beat this disease. And you could see in her face that it was the first time she had ever thought of her condition or her state in that way. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but she looked like she was standing taller on that day before she left. But this idea that she had believed a lie all her life, like this disease was supposed to kill her and it didn't and in fact she was stronger than she thought she was and the and being able to hear that from her in this essay meant everything because now i understood this it was the disease this di- it was the diagnosis it was the diagnosis that had sentenced her to death not even the disease. And so I'm fighting in my mind with the doctor who gives this diagnosis, but doesn't provide any context for her over the next 23 years that she's surviving it. And instead is driving her into the criminal justice system with this addiction, because if her life's over, why, why does it matter what I do? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's, there's some amazing examples of procedural justice in the book. Um, it, it's, it's just so empowering to actually read them as well. And it's, 
juxtaposed with the other side of the criminal justice system, which is basically, as you've said in the book, it's a pipeline for money. A lot of times there's not even a, a voice for the person that's coming in front of the court. So can you explain that side of the criminal justice system and, and how potentially wrong that's gotten? Well, yeah, so the courts end up being um, the second, if in most communities, the second or third, or I, I imagine, I, I can't say for a definite, the first, but a significant revenue generator for communities, your tax base being one, usually being one. And so there is this push to use your courts as a bank. And there's this push oftentimes for the council and the executive branch to push its judges to increase the revenue because the revenue typically comes in from the court and it gets sent to the city to support itself. And so whether it's issuing tickets, whether it's imposing fines and collecting these fines. So it's the imposition, but really the collection of fines. So when you look at communities that are impoverished, communities that have working poor, you look at communities, you're talking about middle class communities, but a fine of $800 that comes up that you have to pay or even a traffic matter that has a significant fine is not easily made. And so what happens is that the penalty for not being able to pay is typically jail, which one, takes people away from their ability to make money or additional court dates to come and explain why you have not paid this fine that you have. Now, in most instances, you have to make a decision as to whether a person can pay a fine or not. That doesn't happen. And so in what you find for poor people, you find that people get pushed through the criminal justice system because of their economic status, race, and poverty. So if they're homeless and we are criminalizing social ills, so things that would fall upon a homeless person, like sleeping in public can be illegal by your city laws, smoking in public which is um, people are always surprised when they get a ticket at what our train station, Newark Penn Station. Outside are the bus lanes. So a person who is smoking outside in the bus lane is actually smoking in a public building, even though it's outside. Now, who's getting those tickets? Typically, the people who live at Penn Station and Newark Penn Station, who are also the homeless folks. And what it means to constantly find them. And we know that they can't pay. So the, the, the way that it typically works is a person gets, a, gets, a, gets arrested. They get held for a day or they wait to see the judge. They agree just to go home, even if they're a drug addict, uh, you know, to get home and, and to get out so that they can get their fix. And they plead guilty to a fine. Now, that fine will include the monetary fine, which is um, flexible, zero to whatever the maximum is, then there are mandatory fines depending on what they're pleading guilty to. So, a paraf- drug having drug paraphernalia, which could be you know a straw if you use it for cocaine, 
or um, paper at the time that marijuana was illegal, you know, the paper for which to, you know, roll, um, or drug possession. So there's a mandatory $500 fine. Mandatory. That's before you get to the discretionary fine. Then there's another $75 fine. And then there's another mandatory 75, another mandatory 50. And then there's the court fees in New Jersey. That's $33. So you're already close to $800 without me even imposing the discretionary fine. And so now you, let's say you walk out and it's a thousand dollar fine. You don't work. How do you pay that? And so I re I give you a time payment. So next month you have to make a $50 payment. Well, that doesn't happen. A bench warrant issues for your arrest. You come back, you get picked up, you sit in jail until I see you again. And so there's this cycle of, in, of this cycle and this conveyor belt of injustice that happens because you're poor and you can't afford to pay. So we churn folks through our county jails. We churn them because they can't pay. Because they can't pay. Not because they continue to engage in bad behavior, even if they do, but because we're looking at one case that we imposed a fine that we knew they couldn't pay when they, when we initially imposed the fine. So people get stuck. And then what happens to women, you know, and, and since we know that disproportionately African-Americans are in the criminal justice system, black and brown people are in the criminal justice system, women have disproportionately been, are responsible for paying litigation costs, whether it's the cost of the attorney, whether it's ultimately the fees, whether it's paying for probation, all of those things tend to fall on women disproportionately. There's a part in the book that I talk about a study that um, that was done and 83% of the women bear the financial burden of litigation. And that's not women in the system. These are women who are related to the people who are in the system. 34% of those women went into debt trying to maintain the people who were in jail. So that's putting money in the commissary, accepting phone calls. Now people, they charge you for emails from the jail. I don't understand why you charge people for email. Email is free. And if you're a part of the state system, people have to pay for email. And, and there are people making money off of we have this email system. It's like 40 cents. A e Are you serious? Uh, and people think that this is okay. 38% uh, made less than $15,000 annually and had $13,000 in attorney's fees and costs. And 65% of those folks who were surveyed said that they could not make their basic needs. Now, when I'm talking about basic needs, we're talking about food. They couldn't meet their basic needs because they had to maintain people who were coming through the system. I saw them all the time sitting in court waiting to hear what happened to their son. How much money is it going to cost? And also not understanding that if you bring whatever money you bring, the court has to hold it until the end of the case. So what happens when a person brings their rent? What happens? They, they've brought their rent because they think it's just to get the person out. And then they come back next month and they want their rent back because they need to pay rent. And judges needing to understand, like, people need to understand what bail is for. And that if he doesn't come back, it gets forfeited to the court. We get to keep it. Ah! So 
all of this happens on the backs of poor people. All of this happens on the backs of poor people. If you have money and you can pay your traffic ticket, you pay it and you go. Most people who have money don't even come to court to fight about it. They just pay it because it's not worth the loss of day of work. But if you have some many tickets, they'll require an appearance. And what happens? And then sometimes judges require people to come back to court multiple times to explain or to show that they made a payment. I mean, I talk about a lot this idea of what privatization of these these functions that the government has to be responsible for does. So private probation, which thank God we don't have it in New Jersey. I I, I know that Alabama ran the private probation um, organizations, businesses out. But what private probation looks like is this. You go to court and you have, let's say, I, I like to use traffic because I think everyone who drives can relate. But let's say you go to court and you have $50 on you. You have a $100 traffic fine when you get there. You only have $50. So you pay. You're like, judge, I can pay you $50, but I have to come back next month with the next. And the judge then puts you on private probation to pay the rest of your fine. That means that you now have to pay private the private company a monthly fee as you pay that $50 that you owe. And in some instances, that fee can be $25 a month. It could be $35 a month. You didn't ask the judge to put you on private probation. You just owe $50. Give me an opportunity to pay it. Or even if it's a criminal matter, just give me an opportunity to pay. But you are now on probation because you couldn't afford to pay a fine that you didn't know how much it was going to be from the first time you got there. Now, when you fail to pay, so now we're at $50, right? And now you're adding on this monthly maintenance fee that I have to pay probation. When I fail to pay probation, I get a violation of probation and all of the legal consequences that can come with that violation of probation. And so I'm outraged by these things because these are people's lives and it's not fair that because they are poor that they should have to go to jail because we've now allowed this government function to be commercialized and now People, somebody has to pay. So that's why the, the this, these private prisons are a problem. If I have a state full of prisons, people got to go in them, right? Somebody's got to be. I can't just have these empty prisons. There is a, an, a, a, there's a filmmaker, V. Bravo, who I don't know if he's gotten this film made yet, but he's making this film about a block in the Bronx or an area in the Bronx and a prison in upstate New York. And most of the people who are imprisoned from this area in the Bronx end up going to this prison in upstate New York, which employs an entire community. So you have like an entire community of people being employed on the backs of these poor black and brown people in the Bronx. And what that looks like, like why is why it's important that we're all outraged and that this stops. 
So it's not just, you know, this assumption that, oh, people go to jail just because they've done something bad. Oh, people go to jail. People go to jail. People get arrested. People have encounters with the criminal justice system for a number of reasons. You have a mental health issue and you are decompensating and you're screaming and yelling in a particular area. That's a disorderly person's offense. And you get arrested. And if the arrest doesn't go well, that arrest for a disorderly person's offense can turn into an assault. And so, you know, a, um, a shoplifting charge for someone who goes into a place and steals something out of a store. Well, if the security guard tries to stop them and they push the security guard, we are now looking at a robbery charge because there was a use of force. And so for me, I think we need to understand that everything is not as it seems. And we need to look at more than the one allegation that brings that person to court, right? Because we're looking at somebody on their worst day. But there were a number of things that happened that the court has to understand before we get to punishing this person for being wrong, uh, for doing this robbery. Yeah, they were at the local store and they pushed the security person out of the way so they could get out. And why are they stealing? So, um, and for our children, especially when we're talking about juveniles, why they get into trouble in New Jersey, when they turn 18, they're considered adults who can be subject to adult court. Well, I don't really think there's a big difference between the 17-year-old and the 18-year-old, <laughs> other than a year. But it's the same person. And so what, what happens when we begin to criminalize our children for still engaging in childlike activities? I love to use the example of the high school student who got sent to me. He stood on a police car and was filming being egged on by his classmates to post it on Instagram. That's dumb, <laughs> especially with the police coming. <laughs> but he's a dumb kid who did, like most of us, dumb things. Egged on. You know, I, fortunately, I wasn't a young person during Instagram, <laughs> during Instagram or social media. So I had less reasons <laughs> to do things to get attention. But what happens to this kid who now gets hit with a disorderly person's offense and the officers process him? and sent him to adult court. And now he's in a municipal court, but this charge, he has an arrest, and now he has a disorderly person's offense that while it's a low-level offense, has now created a criminal record for him. Ah. And what happens when the judge is moving so fast that they just accept? So fortunately for, for us, we have a program, North Community Solutions, that helps us provide alternative sentencing. But on top of that, thank God that Newark also has a youth court where we train high school students to serve as the prosecutor, the public defender, and the jury to ask the questions. And there's a judge who sits, and it's a restorative justice process. So the kid admits that they've done something, but the community advocate, who is the prosecutor, and then the respondent advocate, who advocates on his behalf. But to have our children helping them resolve their matters they get sentenced to workshops and community service that they end up doing with the kids who are in youth courts. So you're using positive peer pressure to change their behavior. One of my favorite parts of the sentence is that 
some of the kids who get in trouble end up being jurors who then get to deliberate on other young people who've gotten themselves into trouble. Marijuana, fighting, theft. And then that the school district now gets to use this as well. So the police do what's called station house adjustments, where they bring in a young person instead of processing them through the criminal justice system, they get to decide to send them to a nonprofit in the community. So it stops the criminal process, but it doesn't stop the help that the kid can get. Um, And also the school districts can now send cases to this space so that they're not constantly suspending young people and that it leads up to expulsion, which is what we don't want. Because once you expel a kid, there's no place for them to go but to spend all their time down at the courthouse with me. That, that brings me to the to, to the point I was going to make next. Actually, you, we've we've just spoken about the pipeline, the money pipeline that, that that some courts have, and how that works in the communities. And uh, there's a film I recommend called The House I Live In, which which goes into the prison industrial complex, which is quite good in this context. Um, but you mentioned in the book two other pipelines specifically, and it really picks up on the point you've just made there at the end. Is one is the high school to prison pipeline. But also the in the, that's from predominantly black males, but for uh, females, it tends to be abuse to prison pipeline. Can you speak a little bit about both of those? Yes. So there's this sexual assault to prison pipeline that gets ignored. And that is how you find most young women or women end up in the criminal justice system because they are victims of sexual assaults sexual molestation. And it's the trauma from those experiences that typically lead them into life, into a life that involves crime. But most importantly, what you see immediately is that the things that they have to do to survive the sexual trauma that is occurring to them gets them sent to jail. So these are young women who are fighting And they get arrested for fighting. Well, they are fighting because they're being sexually abused at home. Um, It's cutting school. It's the trauma from being sexual abused. So when truancy is illegal, and again, I'm not advocating that kids not go to school, but what I'm saying is that truancy is a symptom of something else that's happening. And when we understand that, then we can address truancy differently. Truancy in and of itself is not the crime. It's why is a child being truant? Why are they not coming to school? What is happening at home? Uh, drugs to numb themselves from the physical abuse that they're experiencing, the sexual abuse. So now they get arrested because they've been numbing themselves to that trauma And the criminal justice system's way of dealing with them is we are going to victimize the victim again by prosecuting them. So we spend too much time not asking why these things are happening. Why is this young person here? Why is this young girl? What what is happening to this young girl? And for me, it's a failure of us, of the adults. It's our failure. We have a responsibility to keep them safe. And we're not. So, so much of what you see, they, they, you know, they end up in prostitution, uh, this, uh, the sex trade, uh, what happens when they get sex trafficked? Why are they running away from home and ending up with someone else who's now going to also sexually abuse them and also sell them into um, prostitution? So we, we miss the point. 
we, we are missing the point. We're saying they're bad. We're saying they're bad and we're going to lock them up. But we're not looking at how victims of sexual assault, sexual abuse end up in our criminal justice system. And they're ending up in our criminal justice system as young teenagers, as young women. And we're not doing anything about it. And there's also the quote that, that a black man is born on parole in America. And that, that relates to the school, high school to uh, prison pipeline that we spoke about. There is undoubtedly a disparity within race relations, with socioeconomic relations. How do we go about addressing those? And so, yes, yeah, so you're talking about, um, that's actually an author of an essay that I would assign um, a book, uh, How to Kill Yourself Slowly in America, How Black Males Are Born on Probation. Yes, uh, there's so much work that has to be done. One, we keep acknowledging, but we need to keep going back to the source of why that's happening. Why are Black males, I mean, we have to look at police operations, where they're concentrated. You know, if they're more uh, significantly concentrated in communities that are African-American, I was always surprised at how many marijuana charges I would get for young Black men in my community and be like one joint. And it was because if you live in a community that's heavily policed, so I would have a ward that was more heavily policed, which meant that the young men were being stopped at a higher rate than anybody else. Did I think that the guys, the people who lived in the South smoked more marijuana than the people who lived in the East or even in the North? No, it's just that there's more police contact in that space and that that space ended up causing them to be highly uh, frisked, what's causing young men to drop out of school, what is happening in the school system that, and there's studies all over what that, you know, young black men by middle school are being ignored. They're being ignored. Um, and so what are, what's happening into, to alternative to schools? Why, are, why is it so easy? Why are we so comfortable with young Black men dropping out of high school without providing them with alternatives? Why haven't we provided work in spaces that can really just help them? Why can't we provide training? Why can't we address this police relationship with um, these Black men being born on probation? That This idea that if they're Black, Obviously, they've got to be guilty of something. And how you engage them. Are you engaging them in a way that's going to lead to aggression? Are you looking at so many of the young men who would come before me sometimes got into trouble because they had the audacity, the audacity to speak back, to speak back, to address the off, why are you stopping me? Why do you have to talk to me in that way? Obstructing the administration of justice. And so it escalates. So we really need to be better at, we really just really need to focus these ideas and police training needs to be improved. How we're um, letting entire generations of men just be swept into the criminal justice system, which is why alternative to sentencing is important because we have got to create exit ramps. Do I think that we're going to be able to change the attitudes of, because again, remember, I, I started this off talking about how the court system exists to perpetuate itself, but so do these institutions of police, you know, this military base training that they receive. 
we have to reward people for being peace officers. We have to say, this is what this community wants and, and be willing to do that. So it's going to take years of training, but I think that all of it can shift in days. I think that we really have to begin to say, if you take this job, this is what has to happen. I think so much of how we changed the, 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 the court in Newark as well was that Mayors came in, Mayor Baraka came in, Mayor Booker came in, and they were like, this court needs to reflect these things. And this is why I'm putting new people on it. That's a really good lead to, to me wrapping up with you, because I'm going to put you on the spot. So, so we're talking about the, the amazing things that you've been doing in procedural justice and criminal justice reform. So we're a few years on. Uh, you're President Pratt, which... I'd completely vote for you because being a UK citizen, I'd vote for you, President Pratt, definitely. Uh, so, so from the over, I'm also putting this just in case you do get to be president, and I can go. I, I called it first. <laughs> so you're in the Oval Office. <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah, <laughs> you're in the Oval Office, uh, and of course you've got a, you've got a very keen eye on this on this subject. What are going to be the sweeping reforms you do to completely wholesale transform the criminal justice system? The eradication of poverty. Um, the eradication of inequity and racism. Providing social services, addressing mental illness. Immediately. Understanding that everyone who has to deal with a person has to have an understanding of these things, poverty, mental illness, um, creating gender e equality, equity, being concerned about the issues of women because a lot of this is that people aren't talking about these things. Oh my gosh, improving education. Oh my goodness, giving people an opportunity at life by really giving them an education. And my criticism of the system is that we teach to um, we teach to pass to pass standardized tests. That's stupid. We're not teaching to educate and to create these amazing um, to help our young people unleash their brilliance. Right? Oh my goodness! Economic empowerment, having people pay that can pay. Oh gosh. I need like another hour for this. Uh. <laughs> so don't you think it's interesting though that we, we're talking about criminal justice reform? I mean, then in your in your manifesto, we're not talking about criminal justice reform. It's about education. It's about social equity. It's, it just shows you how wide this topic is, doesn't this it? This is how wide the topic is. These are all the things that bring people. I mean, I, I think we were going to talk about the the guy I talk about in. Um, Racial equity. I mean, we were talking about the, the guy who I saw outside who, but for the fact that I was outside eating in my community, I wouldn't have learned that he suffered from OCD, which explained everything about why he came to court late, why he was using drugs. And it was something that he would have, he never told me because he was embarrassed, but because I was outside in my community feeling responsible for them. I mean, there's so many things that we need to do and all of these things end up getting dumped in the criminal justice system. Uh, if, you, if you are poor, your chances of increase. If you are black and brown, your chances increase. If you're Native American, your chances increase. If you're Native American and female, your chances increase of being killed by the police. That's significant and female and what that means. 
Why are people addicted to drugs? Because we're not addressing the things that drive their minds into the system. So um, I'd also get rid of all this privatization. You know, I'd get rid of all this privatization of principle and all these other acts. I hope they want to talk about me. <laughs> but these these are things that are just damning. They're just damaging. And I institute restorative justice practices so that the community can be I put most of these courts out of business because I would make people responsible for their neighbors. And we would have police. Police understand that people in communities of color are not talking about defunding the police. We just want the police relationship to be different in these communities. And so defund, but defunding the police is also taking some of that overtime budget and putting it into a space that also gives social service organizations some money to help in this space. So if that's what you're talking about, bloated police budgets and using some of that money to do some other good work, then yes, absolutely. It makes sense. And looking at where police budgets are going, is it all going for policing neighborhoods or is this, where's the overtime? Look at, I mean, people want to go to your council meetings and look at these budgets look at see what where the city's putting the money and start asking why is all this money why is all this money sitting in an overtime line why is all this money sitting somewhere else we you have a right to know and to shift and change these things so yeah i'd be really busy i'd be really busy <laughs> all right let's get working on the campaign now <laughs> Thank you, Judge Victoria Pratt. I'd like to think we're going to have further conversations with her. I could have spoken to her for hours. And yeah, she is so knowledgeable about this topic. There's so much more we could have got into, but we'll save it for another day, hopefully. Please do find her work. Please do get more involved in this topic. I want to run thank you. Thank you to the producers of this show, Tristan and John. Thank you for you do. Thank you to Nikki Elson for the executive producing that you do. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. My name's Ad for the artwork. Thank you to Scooby's Pit Fabulous on your network. And thank you for John Harris for everything you do at the Distraction Pieces Network. And thank you to the listener. Thank you for liking, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, and everything you do. Just don't listen to this conversation. Get it to someone else's ears. It really does help. So until next time, keep tuned in. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye. Behind your barricade. But how long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.